I am now hitting record. We're going, Joe. We're going? Yeah, this is going to be live to tape. All right. Again, we're late this week. It is late. We're late. And and we had planned. And let's just go and say what's going to be on the next show. You want to? Go What the next go show is going to be. Normally, we, we like to... Um, we like uh, to keep people in suspense. Yeah, I was going to say we want to keep, you know, behind the veil, I guess, right? Right, right. You, you, you know, so... So what you're suggesting is you're now about to take off a veil. Oh, boy. <laughs> Steve Vladek. Yes. Is going to be joining us. So he was supposed to join us this week. We had it all planned out. Yes. The episode would have come out at the normal time. But what happened? Craziness. Let's just say craziness. Yes. We don't need to go into Lots it. Lots of Michigas. Oh, my goodness. So for various reasons, we couldn't do it. Yeah. So we're, we're recording this spur of the moment. Saturday night. Saturday. I'm hoping it'll go out tonight. Interestingly. No show notes tonight. This beverage has caffeine. It isn't <laughs> coffee. It's a little weird. Does it have caffeine? It does. If you look on the side of the can. Uh-huh. Oh. It's, it indicates that there is caffeine in this product. So this is, let me see, let me read this label here. Four Loco, is that how you pronounce it? Is it called Four Loco? No. <laughs> Are you familiar with the Four Loco? No, joke? no. This oh. is called Coco Bunny. Hmm. I'm assuming it's called Coco Bunny and not Coco Bunny. Right. Uh, or Coco Bunai. A reference to famed listener Bunny, who's been there <laughs> since the beginning, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, no, this is a delicious local beverage. Yes. Uh, so, um, and if you, again, I'm just saying, turn the side of the can and you'll see, uh, it indicates that there is, um, that there is, because there's coffee, um, that there's caffeine in here. Okay. Well, maybe we should get on with the show. Sure. And this is going to be, we're going to do a little bit of mailbag. I've got a few topics here that I want to hit. Oh, cool. And I don't know what they are. No. And so I think we'll do some of these topics first. That will shake loose the vast majority of the listening audience. And then we'll move to the mailbag. Okay, cool. Does that sound good to you? So, yeah, this is so um, fast and furious Christian style. (laughs) Uh, And and partly, I, I want at least part of this to be a diversion from the... You know, the flaming volcanic wasteland of our body politic. So, although although I do want to talk about that a little bit. These are interesting days. So I first wanted to give a shout out. You and I served on a panel together. Didn't record it. Unrecorded panel. Well, not recorded by us. Oh, I guess it was recorded. I believe there was a recording. Yeah, just not going to go out in due course as part of this show. Right. But and, And at some point, you said there's no show notes for this episode. I think at some point... On the on the website, not many people go to a website to listen to a podcast. They're, they've got it in their podcast, podcast you know, app. Right. Um, their podcatcher. But right, Overcast or what have you. Their, but I think we should go listener. back and kind of retcon yeah. the thing and stick that <laughs> stick that stuff in the show note. When we we've get got it next a, week. We've got a link to the, because I believe they're going to release that recording. Yeah. Yeah. We should link to it. You, you mean in this show? I can always go back because it do was that, a I fun guess. panel. We had yeah. a good time. Because there's something else I want to link, link to. I just found out. You know, Steve Vladek is now doing his own show. What? With Bobby Chesney? Yeah, National Security Podcast. Oh, fascinating! Yeah, I did Texas. not know that. Yeah. So there, you know, the whole pod phenomenon is exploding, and and who and you know, Steve's an old pro, being a, a guest host. Of we the love show, Steve. Really. Steve yeah. is a great guest. He's a co-host, really, in a sense. Yeah. So that, I'll, I'll put up a link for that. But next week when we have Steve on, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. So we were on this panel together, the, the, the big data panel. Yes. Where we talked about big data and big ideas about big data yeah. and the law. These are, so it was like, you know, this, it's one of those experiences where you get into a, a conversation and you think, you know, 
you should just listen to this show that we did and that show that we did and that other show. Because I feel like we've all the things we talked about have come up on like three or four different shows, each of which could have gone on for two or three hours. It's funny. I, ha- I had the same feeling, which made me both feel that much more fun about the panel and that much more fun about our show and the conversations we've had. Yeah. I'm, I don't want to start crying or anything and the oh. week I've had I might but so I just want to warn <laughs> listeners oh, um, but but I All feel right. like I just feel like looking back we've had some amazing shows yeah, this, we've had some amazing we conversations have. we've explored really fun and interesting ideas this reminded me of the and episodes I've we did so with, much with in, Ryan Kahlo and Frank Pasquale and our live episode on driverless cars yep. I'm missing some I uh, I think some of the Woody Hartzog yep show that we did so it touched all those things. And it was a big topic. And yeah. so hats off to the organizers for kind of figuring out the yes. right group of people to handle such a big topic. And the students were great. And who was this person? Who was this magical student who who wrangled this very interesting panel together, Joe? Well, uh, her name is Cassidy uh, Grunninger or Grunninger. And, and I say or because <laughs> – and I say to say two different ways because as our loyal listeners will know, um, <laughs> no one can slaughter a family name pronunciation like I can. So, yeah. Cassidy, apologies. Um, you're great and you're wonderful. She's doing amazing and, things in D.C. And I owe you better and, yeah. than slaughtering <laughs> your family name. I really do, and I'm sorry, but it's <laughs> it's either Grunninger or Grunninger. And she's awesome. She's an amazing And this student. panel was terrific. Yeah. And it was well attended. I think we got some great questions. Uh, I, I enjoyed meeting the people on the panel who I had never met before. Uh, I love it when you start to unspool the and then there were factories story which i've heard (laughs) that was yeah yeah, which i've heard you deploy in a few different ways and and it's the only the beginning is the same right you you say and then there were factories and then i always listen carefully because i'm like i don't know what's gonna happen next people (laughs) but it's gonna be good so you gotta listen are you saying that i'm not consistent in my recitation of the implications of the industrial revolution i'm saying you pull a lot of stuff out of those factories You've got a lot of lessons in those factories. So well, I listen. So this was about Because like, I'm going to learn something. You know, in what ways is the, the quote unquote big data revolution changing the practice of law? And do we need big data lawyers or do we need lawyers who all understand something about data? And it's a huge question because it's about algorithms. You know, we've talked about individual ones of this. Uh, individual, did I say right. ones of this? You know what I mean? Right. It's late. Um, meaning 630. <laughs> uh so yeah so so you know it's like we've been through other big transformations before which have had to kind of find their way and reorganize the law so it's that story we've we've told it before on this show and i think you wrote a blog post a long long time ago on on this particular this in fact this very point about about the industrial revolution and the and the this the way that you can look for continuities right you can also look for the big thing that changes around which people need to rethink one or two, maybe three fundamental legal concepts right. because they, they simply get dramatically out of step. There's with some the relations the time. that utterly change, right? Yeah, the well, work, a bunch of stuff can stay the same, and, yeah. but but yeah. a few key things will have to change, right. and and the, and they become sort of an Archimedean point where you can move the world because it's because it because you need to because you have to. Um, yeah, yeah. It was the, the information law crisis. I think was the name of that post. Oh, wow, cool. Yeah, I've linked it up on the show before, probably because I can't shut up about certain certain ideas get lodged in there. Yeah. You know, and they get randomly shaken loose and I just can't shut up I love about it. them. I love yeah, it. Well, you so, know, when you and I are 80 and we're on some porch, <laughs> I'm going to say, Christian, then there were factories and you're going to say something in response and I'm going to love it. We'll be on some porch, but then there'll be some power flickering and then we'll realize that we are suspended meat bags in some... <laughs> 
And then all of a sudden the power will come back on and we'll be on the porch again. Nice. <laughs> uh, so, okay, I got... I did, was, it, did we just come up with the episode title? I really don't no. want this episode to be called Suspended Meatbags. <laughs> no. No, I don't. that doesn't seem like it's going to capture what's going to come later. Cool. I don't think so. All right. Item number two on my list, Joe. Hmm. Oh, so we are working through the topics. I've got, okay. I've got a list. You've um, got a list. I love lists. And, and these, these first ones are maybe – this one and the next one are – well, I'll just go into it. Yeah, do it. I was wrong about something. I love this. <laughs> I knew you would love this Fabulous. Topic. Well, I might not have been. And, and here I won't link it, so you'll have to just kind of look it up. Someone did a study of productivity in terms of writing. Mm. Uh, I, I, what were the measures of it? It I was know like how much you wrote. And have you seen this? Did you see this? I saw, Comparing I, authorship. I saw, you, <laughs> I saw you throwing yourself on the grenade. <laughs> on Twitter? Yeah. Continue. Do, do continue. People, are people Proceed, more, Governor. Are, are people more productive using LaTeX or using Microsoft Word? Now, how do you think I would answer that question? Well, you, you would say that they're going to be more productive using – now, I, I, I have never picked this nit with you, and I'm now going to because you're making me say the word. Oh. I, I have heard it pronounced LaTeX, which oh, is how it's spelled. Gross. And you're pronouncing it LaTeX. Right. Um, I'm right. Okay. Is this, is this a GIF GIF thing? No, no. This is a, everyone who uses tech calls it tech, and then LaTeX follows up from tech. Although, there were some... And that was also spelled T-E-X? There were some wrong people in my math department. Hold on. Was that spelled T-E-X? Yeah, T-E-X. That's what it started and, as. And, and people then, said tech. Tech. Yeah. Okay. You write it up in tech. Is there a particular reason why it was spelled with an X? I, I might have known that at one point, but that was like... A couple of degrees ago, and I'll, I mean, and many that, years. I, I, I think it's in Greek. I don't remember. Is that the letter chi, which the, you could pronounce with a cut sound instead could, of that? A, could be it. In all of the, you know, this is back. I learned this back in the age when anything you did on computers, there was like a seven hundred page soft cover book that went with it. You know what I'm totally, talking about? Totally. <laughs> Lotus one two three kind of thing. Yeah. This huge thing, and so all of those books which had tech or LaTeX on the front used a regular typefaced X. They didn't. At least the ones that I remember. I don't remember, you know, a, a faint towards a chi or anything like that. But, but it could be. Um, and so, yeah, and I don't know. I guess the other thing we'd sort of like was it is some kind of French, like a product of Minitel latex. I mean, <laughs> no. Anyway, although um, I did have some particularly wrong people who would say latex, <laughs> but not latex. <laughs> no, 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 and not latex. No, no one was that monstrous. Not yeah. latex. No, no, right. of course not. So. Um, I'm going to call it latex. So, you're going to call it what? Latex. Please don't. Because that's how it's spelled, dude. Uh, that's not how it's pronounced. All right. Th- this is going to come to a screeching halt because I'm going to have to hit the stop button. All right. Just to make the fingernails on the chalkboard end. <laughs> Let's keep going. Let's keep... Okay. This is, this is a silly little topic and I just wanted to mention it. Be- well, so we did a whole show. Who... We did a whole show about this way back in the day. Do you remember that? We did a whole show about how... People we, write and we using did, word and we processors. Also, and, and, we, and we talked to Matthew Butterick. One that of the, was a, a show that came after that one, yeah. One of the contemporary gods of, right. of both uh, typography and type creation. Right. And sound and calm thinking about the visual presentation of documents sure. as lawyers. Uh, practical typography, kids. Look at it. It's really Matthew good. Matthew Butterick's Practical Typography. Look and learn. <laughs> well, the predecessor to that is the one where we talked about the choice of using word processors and kind of the difference between using something like Word and using a, right. a markup language. 
tech is. I would like to see them do it with Markdown rather than with LaTeX. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, but it turns anyway. out those the the LaTeX users are less are less productive. Yeah, there's a lot of fiddly, I don't know there's a lot of fiddly fiddly. I want to see the there. study though. You know, I don't know how much whether they're writing the same thing, and you know, I I don't know. It's very counterintuitive, though. I have to say, a very counterintuitive <laughs> result. That I had, this, I had no a, intuition about it myself. Oh, so. I had a very strong intuition, I which, I, which I will probably have again the minute I forget about this study, which will probably yeah. be tomorrow. <clears throat> yeah, just have, have more Cocoa Bunny and you'll be fine. I think that show was where we, where we gave out the sage advice that sending a Word document as an attachment when you really only want to send some, someone a document to read is like coming to the dinner table without a shirt on. <laughs> I think you did say that at that time, and and I I think we have to stand by that evaluation. I th- I think that's kind of that's pretty much right. Absolutely, I think absolutely. Okay, you know, so, send PDFs, show people you care. Send a PDF. All right. So if you are or text if file, you were skipping through because you think one of these guys is going to get to substance, of course, why are you listening to this show? Yeah, really. <laughs> you but, might want to reexamine your choices. Then you might want to keep skipping because I've got I've got another. Uh, oh, I don't know if it's really a light topic. Ooh, okay. I don't know if it's a light topic. We'll see what we let's see what we're going to do with it. So, so you know, I was in DC. It was a couple weeks ago now for the women's march. Yep. Drove up there, stayed with a friend. It was great. Uh, we, yeah. It, it was not a couple something. of weeks ago, but how many weeks ago was it now? Um, a, a single week. Was it really? It was last Saturday. <laughs> we're recording on a Saturday. I think you're right. It's just that because this is what day eight of the administration. Day eight it, since it the inauguration. It does feel right? like day twenty. You see what I'm saying? A lot has happened. A lot has happened. So anyway, we were there a week ago, and lovely time. You know, uh, got drove back. It's about a ten hour drive. Yeah, yeah. So got you, home kind of late. I opened my suitcase. I dumped all my dirty clothes by the hampers, but it was kind of late, and I so I was going to kind of sort them into colors like the next day yeah as one does and and then i I had because i was getting up early for class the next morning so then the next morning i got up for class and kind of sorted them because i was able to get up a little earlier sorting reaching in i told this to my property students by the way i shared the story i don't normally i'm not normally a a story sharer okay do you share stories in class joe not particularly no yeah I, i don't really either but this one i did i think in my seminars i do from time to time because they're yeah. more conversational. Yeah. Usually they're relevant. Like they're, they're some yeah, kind of, yeah, there's of some kind of allegory. Relevant. Yeah. It's, it's some, there's some kind of allegory of your own life, which, but, but not in this case, this has absolutely <laughs> no relevance to anything. So it's kind of dark and I'm reaching, I'm, you know, the jeans and one thing, the light shirts and another and kind of going through. And then, then there's a weird sock on the floor that's left over. I'm like, a, what? A, I, a I weird rec- what? A weird like sock like thing. I don't recognize this. Okay. Like what, what is this? And I pick it up. I pick it up. And I think I should get this. So, you know, our listen, this is a visual. Oh, okay. Our, our listeners won't won't see this, but I pick it up and I immediately and revoltingly throw it, like drop it, and 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 like, oh my god! And th- this is what it was, Joe. This is what it was. Can you see that? I see a picture that looks like a squirrel. <laughs> it, are you telling me there was a squirrel in your suitcase? I- all I know is that that was at in my pile of dirty clothes that I had unloaded from our trip. Are you serious? I am absolutely serious. What is it? It is some kind of dead squirrel-like thing. How did it get in your clothes? Well, our the suitcase was open when we were down in the basement where we were staying, and... <laughs> 
should see this. You side. are kidding me, I am right? not kidding you. I am not kidding you. I'm not. Is this not a great oral argument story to share? We've never shared a story like this on oral argument, have we? No, although we do. Ha- we now have a show title, and it is <laughs> Hantavirus. I mean, <laughs> what the heck? That is, it was, let me tell you, it was a shock early in the morning. So apparently this thing crawled into the suitcase at some point. I don't know what day you had this experience, but whatever day it was, I would still be screaming. (laughs) You have no idea. They would find me dead next to the squirrel because I would have stroked Uh. out and died. Really, the reason I'm telling the story now is because I Did wanted to really get your, I, I wanted to get your reaction. Did recorded. this really happen? You're kind of you're poking no, me. It really happened. You can ask Meredith. It really happened. Wow. You know, it's so it's a terrible story. The world's an amazing thing. I would like to think that it was died of natural causes anyway and didn't suffocate on the way down. It so looks. It's a it looks like a bit of a long hair squirrel. There's yeah. some kind of new breed of squirrel. Yeah. So but it definitely looks squirrely. I wanted to share this with you partly to see your reaction, which yeah. is let's face it, really the reason. But also, this isn't. This is. <laughs> This was an important thing that happened to me. That was that was quite um well, it seems lost actually in the in the flow of the whole week, but but there it is. It happened. Uh, yeah, I feel bad. I mean, it, of course with a with the passage of a little more time, it it can really take on the the sort of the patina of myth and symbol uh and we can, you know, write a Joseph Campbell like essay of some kind and because that is a filthy tragedy and and, and a disgusting <laughs> uh, event. Yeah, but I just feel bad for the squirrel. And well, this, I do too. Know. Um, okay. What is this show about? What, away... what is, this, is this is this hold up? Is this the podcast where we watch a movie? Is this, yeah. <laughs> which one is this one? <laughs> you threw away all that clothing, right? <laughs> no, we washed it. Okay, we washed it. I understand. <laughs> what would you have done? The same. You would have washed it, right? Yeah. yeah I mean. <laughs> You know, clearly the idea of burning everything yeah. comes to mind. Oh, but yeah. No. no and I'm assuming you had a funeral pyre for the squirrel. I mean, that only seems fair. It returned to nature. A fallen soldier. It returned to nature. From a distant land who traveled all the way to Georgia. <clears throat> Think about all the poor law professors who have recommended their students listen to our show. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassing. <laughs> This is what happens when we record in the evening and we open a couple of adult beverages That's right. and, and kick back. But this was actually pre-planned. Can you believe I pre-planned to tell you this? I guess planned would be sufficient rather than, yeah, you know. It's, yep. So I have a couple, I have three other things on this little outline. I don't know what you want to talk about. And then we're gonna, we can go to the mailbag. We can go to the mailbag first and come back to these. No, let's but do here's them. Some, well, no, I don't know that we want to do these right now because I'm, I, so I actually at some point want to talk. Just with you, we can talk about this so with Steve gonna, next time. You're about to surface some topics yes. that we may explore tonight, but probably won't. Right. Okay. I, I think we have to at least say, because I've been, I've thought about nothing else today, really, other than this uh, executive order uh, banning visas from people from certain countries and ultimately maybe allowing in people who are of a minority religion in those countries, which has the effect of being essentially a Muslim ban in certain countries. Ironically, not those countries where we have, um, where terrorist attacks have come from, but other Muslim countries. So, um, one of our colleagues and former guests, Marissa Baradaran, wrote a very moving piece, uh, first on Facebook and then on Slate, about her own experience yeah. as, a, as a refugee. And it was, anyway, I, I am filled with these thoughts. There is, as we are recording, there are protests going on at airports yep. around the country. Mm-hmm which I think are amazing uh, and, and, and from my perspective, inspiring. 
There are pictures of lawyers who have shown up in the airport who are writing on poster board with markers, you know, immigration lawyer and holding them up so people mm. know that they're in immigration and they're running between terminals. Right. Uh, you know, it's, there's an awful lot of cowardice out there right now, especially among politicians, but there is also a tremendous amount of energy. And this week, to me, has been about like low lows and and high highs. You know, you, you, your optimism about your fellow human is rewarded by seeing some of these images. And I can tell you, being at the march and seeing some of the, you know, grace but energy of the people at the march was was very moving. And yeah. and I'm seeing that all over. I'm seeing basically a bunch of people who are just not having it. Right? They're just yeah. not going to have fascism. Right. So, um. I don't know if we want to talk about that. It seems like maybe something we could talk about with Steve or we could do at, a, at another date or if you have some thoughts now. The other things I have are uh, emoluments and impeachment. Oh. And the Russia stuff. Oh. As to which there are some follows up. Did I say follows up? Like attorneys general? Like attorneys general. That's kind of cool. <laughs> I think that's more the beer than the, um, <laughs> than any kind of. <laughs> like I think uh, it's, I think it's fruit roll ups, not fruit rolls up. I think it's, but fru- I think it's attorneys general. I think general. you're thinking fruits roll up. Fruits roll ups. That's if there's a single roll up involving multiple fruits. A fruits roll up or, mm-hmm. a f- or fruits roll ups. I think if you're there thinking are multiple of, multi-flavored fruit roll ups. I think you're thinking of attorneys roll up. <laughs> so what do you want to, I mean, look, um, it, we're not a current event show. We are not, but how we're can not you even not be? A, how can you not be? That's, went, can, can I finish? No. Can I finish? <laughs> My little Ross Perot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Uh, Simpler times. People of a certain age. Uh, (laughs) We're not a current events show. Mm -mm. We're not a current law events show. However, we finish. However, the the events that are going on right now, uh, precisely because some of the ways that that some of our most cherished principles and values are both embodied in our basic law and embodied in some of our most important legal norms are the very things that are getting contested. Right. What's the contour of uh, how our border operates? What's the contour of our longstanding tradition as a nation that is, in a sense, a nation of immigrants um, dealing with people who are fleeing uh, all kinds of dangers in the world. Uh, what is, you know, what is the, uh, what's our understanding of the constraint in the emoluments clause of the constitution, which was created this clause at a time when the country was brand new. There was obviously a concern about some foreign power improperly influencing the president, this new office that we had created that was different from the monarchy in England, that was different from a prime minister in parliament. You know, so a challenging attempt to create a new institution and to try to secure that new institution from what you project might be improper influence. Right. Uh, the boundaries of which hadn't been tested because everyone had steered so far clear of it. Right. For 200 and plus years. Uh, you know, these are very basic and foundational legal things that are happening right now mm-hmm. that are getting contested. I, I'm saying it that way because there's at least one person on the other side of, of, of all this stuff. He, he happens to be the president of the United States right now. There's a lot of people on the other side. I think there are also additional people on his side of the issue. 
Um, well, it depends on how you slice and dice the issues, of course. Yeah, there are right. some. I mean, like for emoluments, there is a is a decent legal argument. I don't know if I buy it that the emoluments clause doesn't apply to the president. It applies to officers of the United States, and maybe it's not an office. You know, right? There's some interpretation stuff that that goes on there, which we could get into. That's now, not what Zephyr I wanted to Teachout get into tonight. Who, uh, was on Dahlia Lithwick's uh, uh, Amicus show, Indeed. and they talked about the emoluments clause in a way that that I found very compelling. I haven't done independent research about the issue having taught constitutional law uh one the sort of the basic introduction class which is a which is heavily about structure and less about uh individual and fundamental rights which tends to be in a common law two class at least where i taught common law um you know i i sort of have a sense for the for these structural issues and i have to say professor teachout's take on it made a lot of sense to me i don't understand why you would at that point in time when you're trying to protect the 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 sort of the single most important officer in the executive branch uh that why you would protect everyone else in the executive branch from that kind of foreign influence but not him yeah you can make accountability arguments and separation of powers arguments about I understand how that. you know you could do all that but but I, I i tend to agree i'm not expert in it i've not thought deeply enough about it there's one sense, though, in which I think it is relevant and one sense in which it is not relevant as mm. to whether the president is bound by yep. the specific clause forbidding the acceptance of emoluments. I mean, you might just say gifts, right? It's the it's the no it's it's a no it's the no gift clause. But yeah, but it's not just gifts, right? Because it's you know, it's. This is one of the indications of the clauses uh vibrance and importance is that it enumerates all these different things, right? It's payments of any kind. Yeah, And so you could be – this is where I think things like his hotel properties and other things become important because those aren't gifts. Those are people buying services. Right. But the purchase of the service is in a context where you know he's going to benefit directly in the of form course. of profit. Again, not a gift, but it's interesting. deeply we, troubling. We could get a little law and economic-y and, and suggest that there are two kinds of transactions which are worrisome. Ordinary transactions might be worrisome because even if the person doesn't know the president is on the other side of the transaction, the president may make decisions in order to encourage those transactions to flow sure. his or her way. The, the other, the more traditional concern is that someone will steer business toward the president to curry favor, in which case part of the payment is really a gift to the president or, or, an, ex, or an offer in, you know, for a bribe. So Interesting. Yep. But, you know, but those are, I think both could be covered by... Sure. You know, a reasonable constitutionalist would want to, you know, deal with both problems. Sure. Anyway, I say that, that one is relevant and, and one is not. The first thing that uh, – the, the sense in which the clause is relevant is if you think that courts could adjudicate a dispute in which someone is harmed by the president's violation of the emoluments clause. Mm-hmm. In that sense, it's relevant. And, and, and there you have an issue of standing and you have an, a, a, an issue of political question. Like can courts actually adjudicate the president's behavior in that way? Right. The, the sense in which it's not relevant is for impeachment and removal. There, I think it's it's not that it's not relevant. It's just that it's not decisive because I think if the president you mean has the scope, you mean the scope of it isn't what is your saying is relevant or not relevant? You mean the precise scope and whether it covers I mean, the whether president. the whether emoluments in the Constitution covers the president is not decisive of the question whether he can be impeached for its violation. Right. Whether he can be impeached for doing that sort of thing, because I think impeaching the president for engaging in policy because it personally enriches him is a perfectly good ground for impeaching, regardless of whether this particular clause applies to him, because I think it's a high crime or misdemeanor. Well, not only that, my recollection is the impeachment clause references bribery explicitly. 
Well, it doesn't merely say high crime and misdemeanor. It says bribery, yeah, too. E- even if it's not a bribe. I mean, this is that law and economics thing that we just talked about, right? That, so even yeah. if it's just, I'm not going to give up my businesses and I'm going to do things that, you know, or, or I'm going to refuse. I, I think it's a ground on which Congress could say, show us your tax returns. Prove to us this is not a conflict. Yeah. President refuses to do that. I think you could impeach on those grounds. Uh, undoubtedly. So that's a sense in which the status of the president vis-a-vis that clause is not relevant is not strictly relevant it's not relevant just, i wouldn't say rel- i wouldn't say it is relevant i would say it isn't dispositive it isn't dispositive congress has to be the judge of that that's in, right in deciding whether or not to vote on the articles and of you could have in the senate yeah. to convict and you could have some congress critters, exactly how it should be you could have some congress critters who think that the constitutional status is important for their yeah. vote right but ultimately it's a matter of their vote and yep. we could talk about the legitimacy of that vote i just don't think you need that for the in order to have a legitimate vote in favor of impeachment okay yeah so anyway but it definitely is relevant if what you're doing is trying to sue the president to stop the acceptance of emoluments. Right, which has been done. Someone has filed So it suit. has been done by a group of law profs, and I forget who all was on it, and it's not in front of me, so I don't want to go in maybe to, into too much detail just to flag the big issue, right? Well, the two big issues. I think there is going to be a, a, um, a political question doctrine thing, but let's put that to the side for a second and not go into it and just talk about the standing problem. Mm, right. So I think the suit so far is by this group. Is it Cruz? Is that the name of the group? Crew, yeah. Yeah. C-R-E-W. C-R-E-W. Yeah. And and they're a, you know, a political action type group who um, engages in... Something for responsibility and ethics in Washington. Right. Something like that. And and they engage in litigation and other kind of public interest activities. Yep. (laughs) Excuse me. And they're claiming that because of the president's acceptance of emoluments and conflicts of interest, they will have to devote more time to investigating the president and following up with all of these things than they would if he had deposited all, all of his assets in a blind trust. Fascinating. Now, it's my pet theory that he can't actually deposit all of his assets into a blind trust because he has negative net assets. That's like, that, that, is, that is one reason to think that he is not. You're disclosed. speculating, right? I, of course I'm speculating, but... But that's all that you can do. Right, right. Right. That's all that you can do. And that would be a reason which explains all of the available evidence. But anyway, it may not be true. Um, so the president might not be underwater, uh, just like he might not have cooperated with the Russian agents and hacking the election. It might that he might not have. Right. Right. So so he might have positive assets. He might be able to place it into a blind trust and they may sue saying that he should have done this. And the fact that he hasn't done this impacts their organization because they have to divert resources to monitoring the president. Yeah. And there is a case we could go in. This is the kind of thing we should talk more about. I just want to highlight it for a second. But there is this case which suggests that you could have standing on grounds like that. Like, but it seems really bizarre. It sounds me. like an environmental case. Like it, it sounds like the Lujan, Lujan against Defenders of Wildlife or I can't remember the these environmental cases where the, you know, I if if this action takes place, I will have to travel further to observe this animal or I will have to change my my um, recreational use of this particular area. Uh, I think it's much weaker than those. I mean, in those cases, you're you're saying if a particular resource is destroyed. I wasn't yet going to the question of the strength of the analogy. I was just saying it reminded me a lot of those kinds of theories about standing. And I'm just trying to tell you that your thoughts are invalid. Okay. (laughs) It's it's feeling very familiar this week. (laughs) So I, you know, join the line of people who are telling me that. Oh, my God. Um, That's great. (laughs) 
<laughs> did you, I'm sorry. Did you want to finish? Not uh, anymore. Let's... I mean, I, I think it's I think it's interesting because because you know for the non lawyers, what's the standing idea all about? Well, you know, the standing idea is an effort to make sure. That And if Matt Hall were here, he'd do a much better job than I'm about to do because he teaches this stuff on a regular basis. But, I mean, my sense of standing is, you know, the, the, the courts, Article Three courts, federal courts in our system are uh, not supposed to engage in uh, adjudicating a case unless it really is a case, unless there really is a controversy between the parties so that what the judge does will re- make a real difference for them. And that's called and justiciability. It, and so if, if there were no if there were no limit to justiciability, then conceivably the court could opine on whatever matter of law it wanted to. Right. And you and could just write would be the less judge distinct, you would be less distinct from a legislature. Write a court and say, you know, it'd be awfully interesting if you if you talked about the following. Right. Uh, that's not how courts operate, at least not our federal courts. That's not how they operate. So one facet of that effort to make sure that the court is spending time adjudicating things that really are cases, really are disputes between parties, is insisting that the person who begins the case, the plaintiff or the plaintiffs, if there's more than one of them, are in the kind of position where, again, a, a judgment in their favor would make a difference because it really connects to a, a specific wrong that they're complaining about on the part of the defendant. And I'm not getting the doctrinal no, that's, details that's, right, but, yeah, this but is, I think that's the general premise. The latest doctri- doctrinal details insist on things like you have to show that you have a concrete injury. You have to show that that injury is redressable, right? That it's fairly traceable to the defendant's action. So you're <clears> much <throat> better you're than I the right did. person, right? No, that's just the, the kind of the black letter stuff. But the core idea is what's important because you could elaborate any particular doctrine from that core idea. And the core idea just is that this needs to be a fight, right? That the, yeah. the court is adjudicating fights about law and not opining, you know, uh, on law for its right. own sake. Because and the benefit it's especially having... important in a world where you know that any time the court adjudicates a fight, it will also be making law which will, pro- which will apply prospectively. Yes, and that benefit, uh, a, a pro, a, a, an interpretation, a creation of law uh, that that will apply prospectively, that can be enormously beneficial. That's a valuable piece of information. Right. What will a court do in response to situation X? Right. Very valuable. So you can imagine people who really want to know X right. uh, would feign a dispute to get it. Like right. they, w- they would, let's pretend we're really arguing. It, we'll, try, we'll make it look as good as we can. Uh, well, you know, you need to try to find ways to see through that. And standing is part of that inquiry. And there, there are cases in which a court, a court's resolution of something which will almost assuredly cause a more expensive suit later, courts will find a way to reach that. So declaratory judgments. Decla- you know, so courts can declare the party's rights in a case where it's clear that there, a conflict is emerging and there's a need for a court to, you know, right. oftentimes in like property cases. Uh, to say, yes, you are the owner of the property rather than this other person. Otherwise, you've got to adjudicate future trespass actions and all kinds of, you know, it gets, so there are cases where courts will opine about potential future disputes, but, and there are exceptions, but that's the core of it, right? The core of it is the court should be a fight adjudicator and not a legislature. And in this case against uh, the current president on this emoluments clause question, I think the standing, what, what that standing issue has sort of attached to it is the general resistance a court would have, I think, to reaching the conclusion that, well, if if you have standing, kind of anyone would. Yeah. Because that looks, that begins to look like the, hey, let's just write a letter to the court and ask them what they think. Uh, 
and the court's done two things to try to eliminate this. One is organization organizational standing. So organizations can have standing to sue, of course, because organizations do sue. But in order to have standing, there there are a couple of things, but one is relevant right now. There has to be an individual who's a member of that organization who has standing or right. who is related to that organization who has standing. I don't remember exactly what the doctrinal term is. And and so it's not enough that your organization because you can author whatever purpose for your organization you want, right? And if you can author whatever purpose you want, then it's always possible to create a conflict out of that written purpose. So mm, it's, it's basically possible to kind of author a lawsuit, right? <clears throat> yep. And so the one thing the court doesn't want to occur is for people to be able to sue based on violations of law because they are injured by the bare fact that there's been a legal violation. Because that makes them like everyone else who right. is in the jurisdiction when the violation occurs. Taxpayer standing, right? I'm a taxpayer. Yeah. The government's done something bad. It's affected spending within the government. Although interestingly, there is there are there there is a sort of flavor of taxpayer standing that relates to violations of the religion clauses, yes, right? Because it's the only way to to do it, right? If you're a taxpayer and the government is using your taxes to establish a religion. You can yeah. sue. Like, what is this, Flast against Cohen or something like that? I don't There's remember a, the name of the case, but there are a number of cases. I mean, yeah. many, many Establishment Clause cases are brought that way, and I, I don't know the whole list. We'd go to have to go to Nathan Chapman probably right. uh, to, to, get a, to get a better list. So anyway, that's, that's the background. We really want to see a real fight. And this organization, this organization has said, we, this is our purpose. This is kind of what we do is monitor government ethics. Right. And if this person is violating ethics in this way, suddenly we're going to have to investigate that, and that's going to take money and time away from other things. The problem, of course, is that 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 would that gets toward that being able to sue for any th- reason, like right. any legal violation. Like I, so we could set up an organization called, I don't know, uh, Citizens Against Government Violations. No, here, here's so, the thing. It's not though. a good acronym. We need a good backronym. <laughs> here's, I think you're right. We could do if, Citizens Against Government Ethics Cage, ooh. but that would be weird. Yeah, the I think. You you make a great point about the risk. Okay, stop the show right there. <laughs> you make a great point about the risk and the possibility. Of course, one way to deal with that is, uh, and it's probably only a short-term solution, but I do think it's fair to point out that, that yes, that's a, that's a reason to be skeptical of the claim, but... One way to meet that skepticism is to look at the track record of the particular organization in question. And how long has it been doing the sort of thing that it's claiming? Was it just set up to bring this lawsuit or has it been around for a very long time engaging in just the sort of behavior it's describing with limited resources such that it really is affecting their resource allocation decision? I'm not saying it's a complete answer, but I think it's a way to begin to, you know, push back against the skepticism that a court might find persuasive. Yeah, I've got a separate. I've got another theory of standing, oh, but okay. I'm not. Gonna, we're, I'll just say this: under current doctrine, it certainly seems to me that this is a very weak standing claim. Yeah, right. Because it just we're set up to monitor government ethics. This is an unethical thing. We're going to have to devote resources to. I didn't see much more in it than that. Admittedly, I read it quickly, so we may come back to this. Maybe with Steve. Maybe in a future show. So one thing that occurred to me and that I asked, I thought would it's perfectly obvious is. You know, you don't have to show that the president has kind of personally injured you by taking an emolument, like the taking of an emolument has like, you know, wounded you as if the emolument were a sword. You just have to show that you suffered some injury that is traceable to the president's acceptance of emoluments. Right. 
uh, and is redressable by an order think, to stop doing that, which means th- that all you need is a DC hotel. I was just going to say, yeah. yeah, I think you just need a competing hotel. Yeah. And so I tweeted that and got a reply that maybe that case is coming. <laughs> so, Excellent. There you go. Right. So there you go. That, so I, I, you know, who, you know, maybe that's tomorrow's news today, but that, that seems the obvious. I don't know why they didn't add a plaintiff with clear standing like that. It doesn't make sense to me. It's so, funny because I'm it's sort of this lay out there. It, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, uh, a fun, um, it's a, it's the fun mirror image of, of one of my favorite antitrust cases, uh, from, from early in the class when you teach an antitrust class early on, you, you always teach Brunswick against Pueblo Bolomat, which is this case about antitrust standing and the fact that the antitrust plaintiff needs to demonstrate that the harm of which they're complaining is an injury to competition not an injury caused by the existence of a competitor. Right. And, and the reason that's important is because, of course, we want competition, <laughs> and competition inflicts lots of injuries. Sounds like the fourth factor of the fair use test, right? Which is that you... Um, <laughs> um, no sniffing, Joe. Okay. I've got to go back in and edit those out. <clears throat> no, you don't. <clears throat> All right. Um, uh, that the fourth factor of the fair use test this is in copyright you want to look at market effects you look at the effect on the market right and right. and if someone especially just, substitution effects right so if someone um makes a parody of what you've done and it's a devastating critique and people say well that you know that that original that sucks because this parody is very convincing it destroys the market but that's not what we're looking at you have to show instead right. you have to show that people are using it as a substitute in other words that the harm arises from the fact of the copying and right. not from the fact of the new thing and and in uh and that makes it like the emoluments clause claim that you would be showing a harm that was from a substitution effect, right? Right. But getting yeah, the room at true. his hotel, right, if, if all of these foreign diplomats are suddenly um, – well, I guess well, – if all these foreign diplomats are getting the hotel room instead of coming to my hotel – to curry favor, they're worried that the State Department people are, so where are you staying while you're in town and all this kind of right. jazz, right? Um, then that's a substitution effect. Right. Um, the Brunswick Pueblo against Pueblo Bolomat issue is that, you know, these these bowling alleys were complaining, hey, you know, if Brunswick hadn't bought that bowling alley to keep it from going out of business, I would be making more money because they kept it open. And now I still have a competitor in town. And their theory of the case was that was because of Brunswick merging with that firm. And yeah. the. Sherman Act has obviously addresses itself partly to mergers uh, and the Federal Trade Commission Act, blah, blah, blah. This is fun because it's different ways of thinking about standing and who's injured and what kind of injury you need to show. Yeah. Now, that's what I think that could be the sort of the deeper foundation under all of this so that even the hotel owner can't make the right kind of claim because I guess a court could conclude and this gets to a sort of political question conclusion, right? That actually no one can show the right injury. No private person can show the injury because the injury is a sort of systemic injury to the the, the separation of powers itself or right. to the integrity of the presidency itself. And Congress has an impeachment mechanism it can use to address that. And it's really the only place to get this addressed. And it's up to Congress to stop your hotel from getting hammered by the fact that dignitaries are not. Yeah, and you might point to that as a, and look, you could say if you're a court, look, one reason not to worry about, this wouldn't 
I think this would be a naive view, mm-hmm. but I can imagine a judge saying, the, the, in fact, the hotel owner is a great illustration of why there would be plenty of people bringing this to the attention of Congress. Right. Because there will be plenty of people who would be injured in their, in their business by the diversion of funds away from arm's length transactions that aren't intended to curry favor with the president toward those that are. Uh, and, and Congress might therefore be alerted to the problem and well, that's made the, to the understand the problem. remedy is much broader than emoluments, partly because it may be the it may be, you know, big, uh, big tobacco, which is putting all its people up in the president's hotel and it, which doesn't involve the emoluments clause. But it is a clear kind of corruption con- this conflict is where of interest. It, it that, may involve the emoluments clause because, again, it's about pro- he, he would still profit from that. So it's not emoluments aren't just foreign. But not from it, it, what what is the what is the language now though? It's not just foreign entity uh, origination. Um, is it? Um, is it o- is it only? See, if, if it comes is, from a this foreign. Is live. I don't want I don't want to edit anything. So I'm trying to go really fast here. There there are several emoluments clauses and. Um, no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept any. Except of any present emolument office or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Ah, so there really does need to be a foreign state. Right, I mean, so I, you'd have to... Big so tobacco it, doesn't... Or, well, you know. well, if it were... Well, read it again. Any any what? King, prince, or foreign state. Okay, so if... There, there are other emoluments mentioned in the Constitution, so, okay. you know, let's but just... But if there... You know. any, it, it could be big tobacco if there is if there is a tobacco company that is a state-owned enterprise... Of course, yeah. ...of some foreign country. Yeah, SOEs from China or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that that's possible, but the point is there could be lots of injuries caused by the holding of such properties and continuing in the business. That even if you know, and and with the foreign dignitaries, like the, I think one of the things they said they would plan is that all of the profits from such people staying in the hotels would go to the treasury. They would donate them to the treasury, which does not at all address the harms to competitors. But anyway, no. we should leave this one. Nor does it. Nor does it address the the the, the fact that. The recipient still got to make the choice about where the funds would go, and that's a choice he would not otherwise have been able to make. Right. So I think that's no answer at all. But Congress can impeach. I think Congress can impeach on much broader grounds than the emoluments clause. Yeah, that's a fair point. So the other the other thing I wanted to hit quickly, and then we'll then we'll uh, we got just a few items in the mailbag, and then we'll wrap it up. The Russia stuff. Mm. I only wanted to highlight this because you remember when we were talking to Lori Ringhand about the electoral college. Yeah. One of, you know, we were, you know, those were, well, those were different days, but, (laughs) 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 Uh, and we were asking, you know, what should the electors do given the non-disclosures, given everything going on? I I don't remember the list of things that should bear on their decision, but one of the things that we did not know and still do not know is given that there was this hacking, right? And and I think all of us felt that the mere fact that a foreign state hacks uh hacks into hacks information and then distributes among the populace in an in a in an asymmetrical way. And in fact, even if you knew that it through the election that they did that, right? But that's not a reason to suggest that the president is illegitimate. It's a reason to say that maybe the the election is suspect and we should do better next time. Yeah. But if the president had no role in that, then it's not a good reason to suggest that there's some wrongdoing, right? Um, right, and the and the victor in that election would still be the lawful victor of that election. And there was a piece by David Korn and Mother Jones that I'd seen that I linked up in the show notes, which was what turned out to be this dossier. Yeah. Right? Yep. 
but Corn uh, did not report, you know, he didn't release the dossier like BuzzFeed did, but he described it. He released small snippets from it suggesting, hey, there's a credible allegation from a person that I trust who we now know who that is, right? That um, they, that there was this cooperation, right? That there was this coordination, there were quid pro quos, there's all kinds of troubling stuff. And we, and we also all agree that that would be very troubling, that if you knew that in advance, then all bets are off, right? And so what's, I only bring this up now because it's, maybe at some future point we should think about what, what a disaster. Like what, you know, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't, I don't know what he, I, you know, I don't know the truth of what's in the dossier, but I have never even really thought about a constitutional legal problem of that magnitude. Like how do you even process through that? Who investigates under what conditions? Well, the president's in there now. Right. Is the investigation ongoing? Like, well, and as you said before, uh, you know, the impeachment, rem- the impeachment mechanism uh, is designed with a kind of flexibility and breadth that would permit that mechanism to work. Certainly, Absolutely. I think so. In that sense, we have the same answer we just had a moment ago. Yeah. What was so weird about it is that it came up in the con- before the president was in office, right? Where there was it, presumably right. the and there didn't appear to be in the Constitution the flexibility to make any use of that. I don't want to go too deep into it, other than to say. Wow. You know, this, so, so this all, so this, this Corn's reporting basically broke again. And, and most reporters, to their credit, credited Mother Jones with having broken the story yeah. and sitting on the dossier and not releasing it. But NBC News was able to, oh, no, CNN, right? CNN, I think, was the one who first reported on the fact that Trump and Obama were both briefed about the dossier's contents, mm-hmm. which I, was kind of the hook. At, that allowed CNN to say that there was such a dossier, although uh, they didn't release it. Right. And then Buzz, and then people were talking about it, and then and Buzz BuzzFeed released, released it, it and right. then it's a big deal. And we still don't know anything. You know, we still don't know what in it is credible, if anything. Um, I don't know how to read raw intel, so, but it is explosive, to say the least. And anyway, I just wanted to flag, we, we, we put it in the show notes uh, for that show, and it seemed like it was getting no attention or very little attention, and all of a sudden it blows up and it's one of the biggest stories, partly because of the salacious nature of right. what was in part of it. But I don't know, do you have any thoughts about this? I mean, are, is it, are you thinking, I'm just kind of checking in with, with friends and others, like, I, are you worried, are you thinking about this much? Or, or do you think, guys, ah, this is going to blow over and it's going to be four years and it's going to be normal, not normal, but it's going to be political battle on other scales? Well, neither. I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm in neither of those situations. Uh, it, it, I do think of it from time to time because I continue to see news reporting from time to time about things like members of the Russian security forces getting arrested and then people talking about, well, which figures were arrested and what were their activities and were they involved in any of the purported hacking activities? And one of them who was suspected of being a source was found dead in the back of a car. As an example, yeah. right? So, <laughs> so this continues to be in the news. Uh, as as people continue to, and and I suspect it will remain the case for a while, as people to continue uh, to to sort of dig around and try to figure out what's going on. Now, to the degree that there are uh, people within our own uh, national security apparatus who are trying to get to the bottom of some of these events of the past year and a half, um, you know. Are, are they stopped by their superiors? Uh, even if they aren't stopped, do we ever learn about the, the findings of those investigations? 
even if we do learn about the findings of those investigations, what is the ultimate upshot of there having been such findings or conclusions made in the investigations? So I think there's just so many links in a chain that would connect all of that to his no longer being the president of the United States. It's a, it's it's possible. We don't have an independent counsel statute anymore. No, we don't. That's true. If Obama, uh, but had even a, but even there, yeah. of course, that just produced a body of information yeah. which Congress then had to make a decision about what it wanted to do. Right. right. So even that was that was not a replacement for the impeachment mechanism. No. It was simply the kicking off of one. If they wanted it created to one. kind of an, a more independent entity post Watergate, whereas now you can still have a special prosecutor appointed who has some degree of independence, but who is you know, serves at the pleasure of the president. Which is a great segue to Phil. <laughs> Listener Philip. You want to do this? Let's get into our Shall open we up the mailbag. The mailbag? Yeah, it's funny because just as we were talking, I looked down at the mailbag and, and, and ploop, uh, a little email from Steve Laddick came in. Oh my God, are you kidding me? Yeah. He says, well, I guess we'll have some things to talk about on, on Thursday. <laughs> Seriously? So, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. That's okay. Uh, so we got this. this uh... Hi, Steve. I'm just saying hi. Hi. Assuming he's listening. Yeah. Yeah. We received a, an email from listener Philip. And uh, listener Philip began his message with a wonderful expression that I have used many times. Uh, and so that delights me. Homer nods. Uh, this is uh, obviously a reference to the great uh, Greek um, epic poet Homer. Oh, it's not a baseball thing. No. Okay. And... Uh, he says, Homer nods, comma, and so do law professors. <laughs> now, his, uh, his discussion is of our discussion of the Saturday Night Massacre that ended with the firing of Special Prosecutor, Watergate Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox by uh, then Solicitor General Robert Bork, uh, a different meaning for the verb to, to get borked. <laughs> and uh, the Attorney General at the time uh, declined to fire uh, the special prosecutor. And Philip says, and I have not gone back and listened to it, that, that I said he was obliged to fire. And he makes, he makes the point that there's a sense in which what I said is, is, tr- is the, there's some reasoning there that is sound reasoning, right? He was the attorney general. Uh, if the president gave a lawful order, it, he was duty bound to follow it as part of his job. Now, uh, Philip is is refreshing us on the history of the time. Are you going to litigate this? No, you're not. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then th- that that when Richardson was undergoing a confirmation process, something that we're seeing now, by the way, in the news, there's a you know the the new president is choosing cabinet members. They get uh, they have confirmation hearings. Senators ask them questions about what they will do, what they won't do, what their commitments are, what their goals are, what what things they r- resist and disagree mm-hmm. with, and uh, and it. According to Philip, I have no reason to doubt it that uh, that Archibald, Co- uh, excuse me, uh, Elliot Richardson uh, was asked to and did uh, under uh, with promise did undertake that he would not fire. I'm reading now would not fire Cox except for extraordinary improprieties. Now, uh, Philip's next sentence: In short, Richardson was obligated not to fire Cox. Uh, here, here's here's the thing that I think is interesting about this and slippery oh, that about isn't, it. Yeah, and I what? Yeah, that that is interesting. Yeah, go ahead. So I sort of I agree, think I know what you're going to say. I but. agree with Philip, and I don't agree with Philip. It, in look the 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 fact that that Richardson had a, had an agreement with the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, is really important 
Um, but it can't bind the president, uh, I don't think. I think if the, the, the president is in charge of the executive branch and can fire the attorney general for cause. Well, I would say it's not. Or, a, or it's, not for cause. It's not, but it's not even an agreement in the sense of a contract. In no, that's words, true. It, 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 it didn't form an obligation. What I think a, the only thing you could say is that uh, if, so I don't, I don't, I don't get to finish. Well, I w- no, I was just going to say that if he, no, no, because I'm going to, I'm going to jump in. Is that right? <laughs> 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 I, I, I want to interject this now, otherwise I'll forget it. Okay, is that all right? That's great. No, that that the the only thing you could say is that if he knew at the time that he said it that he did not intend to do that, then maybe it's contempt of Congress. Right. So, so if he, at the time he promises that he, or he says that he will only fire under these circumstances, but did not have that intention and you could show it these days with emails, maybe then surely. Right. But that's not, but, but you don't form a contract with Congress through your confirmation hearing. Yeah. What what I think is interesting is, is, um, that of course your hypothetical, like what if we could show that he, that he was intentionally, uh, misleading Congress by promising not to fire Cox except under extraordinary circumstances. Of, of course, what history shows is that he was being completely honest because that's exactly what he did. He said, I'm not going to fire the guy. Right. And, and that means that he, he, he viewed himself as, as it, it meant more to Richardson to keep his word to the Senate Judiciary Committee than it meant for him to follow a lawful order of the president. I think it was a lawful order. And I don't think any agreement between Richardson and the Senate Judiciary can not. make it otherwise. Of course not. It's not so a contract. I think the un- and so there's no like third party person who's bound by that contract. Right. And, and you know, there's all kinds of legal words and phrases you could use to capture the idea of privity and other things that it's <laughs> the, <laughs> the structure of the executive branch under law at that time and today is that if the president wants to fire the attorney general because the attorney general will not do a thing, it is lawful for the president to require the attorney general to do, the president can fire the attorney general. There's, well, it's, the word can is so loaded here and the Nixon saga shows why. I think that the, the, the Congress could have impeached and removed just for that. You say it's lawful. But they could have decided that it was done in order to cover something up, and it, that could have been one that could be a ground for impeachment. You fired the special prosecutor. I mean, Congress has this is a matter of yes. the exercise of power and the and the legitimacy of that power in the public's eye. Absolutely, and and the um, that that and so maybe the better phrase would be you know apparently lawful order, uh, and even there, right? You can say if you're Attorney General Richardson. You know, it might seem lawful, but the reason I made that commitment to the Senate Judiciary Committee is because everyone believes it's more important that this person be permitted to get to the bottom of the matter that person's investigating. Yeah. And you are in the crosshairs of that concern. So it it simply isn't appropriate, right? Um, and so you can have that argument about the what's the legality and what's the lawfulness in that context. I I, I think there is a principle that it, maybe you can't state it any more firmly than that. If there is an order that it is that everyone would acknowledge after thorough, careful consideration, investigation is a lawful request of the president to make of the attorney general and the attorney general refuses. President can fire the attorney general, period. That's can. a perfectly good reason to fire them. Um, and I think it would be odd for Congress to impeach 
on that basis if it were in order that, as I said, after thorough reflection and investigation were utterly unimpeachably lawful, <laughs> right? Then it would be weird to impeach. It would be weird to impeach for an unimpeachable thing. The, yeah. impe- the, impeachment, <laughs> the impeachment standard uh, is, is – it isn't right. a, a majority of the House thinks they would rather have a different president. Think unimpeachably unimpeachable rather than unimpeachably impeachable. There you go. Mm-hmm. It's an unknown unknown. Yeah. Um, so I think I think there was great. There's great fun and sport in the in the email. There's also really important, uh, f- interesting points about uh, the history and and so thank you, uh, listener Philip. It was a fun. It was a fun note to get. I'm standing. Awesome. I'm sta- I am standing by my assertion that. There was a an important sense in which uh, his agreement with the Senate Judiciary Committee, notwithstanding, uh, Richardson was was given a, an, an apparently lawful order by the president. Hmm. That's my take on it. I'm not going to say anything. And about he did that now. an honorable yeah. thing. And yeah. and if I were him, I would hope I had the strength to do the same honorable thing. He surely said, you would. He said no. Yeah, surely you would, right? I've never been the Attorney General of the United States, and I've never been in that situation. I have a hope for how I would behave. Yeah, but, but that's I all you can say. Sure. That's all you can say. We got this email from listener Fisher, uh, which pointed out that he he was comparing our episode with Will Bode to the episode that we did with Kessler and Posen mm-hmm. on on and that the life actually cycle came up in our discussion with Will Bode. I mentioned. I felt it. like it did. Yeah, and, and he and then and Will said that he had actually cited their paper in in his in yeah. one of his. Pa- articles yeah. on this point so yeah good. but this this bubbled up in fisher's mind as he was listening and 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 wanted to remark that he felt like the kind of originalism that that will is advocating is exactly that kind of watered down like the yeah. the uh, at the tail end of the watering down process in kessler and posen's kind of theoretical what, life cycles and this is exactly theory. what i said at the very end of our conversation with will I, because i got to that point and was felt, i think i said something like you know, I've got question marks all the way down now because I because I don't understand why we're doing this at all. Uh, and that's another way to say a similar point. So thank you, listener Fisher. What about this email from listener Joel? Now, this is very interesting. We this is the exact exactly the kind of email you want to get, which is a, a, a fun, smart, interesting person sharing some ideas. He's not a lawyer. Uh, he's an engineer. Awesome. Uh, he was interested in the uh, stuff on autonomous vehicles, which we've talked about a few different times in a few different ways, including the episode we recorded at the uh, Tech Law Institute last I think that fall. That was called "Gonna Work" after Atrios's series of blog posts. Not going to work, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so he he wanted to share. Uh, what he describes as a few points uh, or opinions that he feels often get left out of discussions about the ethics and legality of self-driving cars. Now, this is a very uh, well-crafted, well-thought-out, generously shared because very lengthy. Yeah, Um, but it's that kind of lengthy but well-written, right? Yeah, because I learned a lot from reading this. It gave me a lot to think about, and I'm very grateful that he sent it. And uh, but what I thought I might do just to help the readers get some of the benefit and enjoyment of, of that I have had reading this message. Listeners. Uh, what did I say? It's okay. What did I say? Oh, I don't know. We'll go back and play the tape back. Did I say readers? Yeah, or? you did. It's okay. Uh, I'm feeling punchy. Okay. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the first sentence of he's got these bulleted paragraphs 
And if you read the first sentence, it's like it's a principle and then he elaborates on it in the rest of the bullet point paragraph. That sounds great because there's a lot in here. And if the next time we talk about this stuff, we may come back to some of the points that are made in in detail. Yeah, Um, go ahead. So I'm just going to read out these points. Uh, Point the first, if all users are following the rules, there should be no, quote, accidents. Mm -hmm. Interesting way to think about the rules. And and the word accidents. And how you prove and how you program the vehicles. Uh, uh, Point the second. The information that autonomous vehicles will process is inherently probabilistic. Really important. Makes for some interesting challenges, no doubt. And and basically that the any kind of ethical programming has to take account of the probabilistic nature of things. Right. right. Kind of like tort law does. Mm. Yeah. Point the third, an autonomous vehicle should act predictably so that other road users can act defensively in accordance with their appetite for risk. Neat. Do you think that's intention with the idea that everything is probabilistic? Uh, yes, it's. In, I think it's in a little bit of tension, but it, it. I think you resolve that tension by talking about thresholds, probability thresholds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that past a certain point, uh, there's a perception of predictability because he's talking about other road users. Right. So what I think he's envisioning here is, you know, people who are walking on the road who are not in any kind of vehicle at all. Other people who might be operating a vehicle rather than in an autonomous vehicle. Right. Um, if you're riding a bike next to one of these cars, you you want to be able to know, given the conditions, what it's going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to within an to within an acceptable level of of uh, right uncertainty. It's it's funny though. Let me stop you there, just because one of the things I remember talking about with Frank Pasquale, and and maybe with maybe with Ryan Kahlo too, and again at this big data panel was, um, I think it was after the panel with some students that one of the things about these cars is that these this acceptable risk threshold, like there'll be a very small, you know, with any luck, there'll be a very small risk of something bad happening. But the kinds of things that will happen could be spectacular and You and I talked about this. We talked about it. Say, uh, when our, we were on yeah. our way to that Tech Law and, Institute. And, right. And, right. and not it's just It's going to be a 500 like, car pilot, well, not I, a five car But not pilot. just that. It, all, it could also be like a family driven over a cliff in a minivan, right? These kind of right. like, it could be like horrific... Part of the horror comes from unexpectedness. Right. And these functions are not going to degrade gracefully (laughs) (laughs) because there are these vehicles hurling through space that weigh thousands of pounds. Right. And when you get out to the very, very, very tip of that probabilistic tail, you could have some pretty horrific, by definition, they are unexpected, right? Right. Yeah. So it's a very it's interesting because in a world with 30,000 auto deaths a year, between 30 and 40,000 deaths a year, like almost like nothing is unexpected. I mean, <laughs> when you go into the details, they're oftentimes they're horrific. They're, you know, they're horrifying. Yeah, totally. uh, but like, but in, it's weird because in a world with like, think about plane crashes, like each one is traumatic and, and, and horrifying because you can see yourself on a plane and you think sure. of it and it looms kind of large. If there were only like three auto accidents a year. But they were spectacular, like being driven off a cliff or, you know, all, you can imagine, right? It's weird. They would loom differently in the mind, partly because of the horror aspect of it. I them. wonder if you haven't just made an important... So, so Probably not. So, tra- tra- so traffic ac- car accidents are going to become more like uh, plane crashes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, if, that's if, a way to summarize that point. I if, think. if it works, contra atrios, in, yeah. for some definition of works. Point the fourth. Autonomous vehicles should not make arbitrary guesses about conditions outside of their field of regard. Hmm. That one is a little harder to fully assimilate the idea, but I'm going to leave it out there 
point the fifth. He says, for example, this would mean that the actions taken by an autonomous vehicle must be acceptable regardless of whether the school bus in the scenario is full of children or not. Right? So it doesn't... It's a way of... Like, you can't make assumptions about maybe, you know, this time... I, I Well, I don't want to go into it. I, I, I want to think more about it. It's just that... Hmm. What does it mean to make arbitrary guesses? What does it mean to be arbitrary from the point of view of an algorithm? Like a random number? Does it mean... Hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think um, you can imagine... Uh, as an engineering solution, potentially that you know, outside a core set of parameters, uh, how fussy should you be about the values of other parameters that could be useful in some situation, but isn't in most or isn't known in most? And you might put some dummy variable or some random variable, and I don't know. I don't make these systems. It just doesn't seem. I, I, you know, if you know you're driving through a a park, like if the car knows it's driving through a park, and it has and on either side is some kind of greenway or something where there are cyclists and pedestrians. And it has, uh, maybe there's some programming which tells it during certain times of day, there are more likely to be a lot of people there. And it has to decide whether to swerve over onto that, that greenway because of some like garbage truck, which is going down the wrong way on the, on the, on, mm. on the parkway. Okay. I think what he's saying here is that it shouldn't make assumptions that it can't observe, right? It shouldn't make Arbitrary guess. Oh, he says arbitrary guesses. Yeah, you're right. There's something about the word arbitrary. Because yeah, that's, an, what I'm, that's what I'm hanging because up an on informed, here. Because an informed guess, it seems to me, ought, ought, ought to be okay. Well, it seems to me that everything that the car does is based on a model, right? And the model uses these data. Is, but so if, it, if all it knows is that there is some sidewalk next to it, should it not swerve because it doesn't have information about what's going on on that sidewalk? But if you know more about this park, like there's some kind of networking stuff which indicates, you know, probabilistic traffic, you know, pedestrian traffic, maybe that's not arbitrary within this meaning. Yeah. Anyway, I'd want to think about that some more. Next principle. Where possible, real, where possible, real data, for example, the actual number of annual collisions where multiple pedestrians are struck by a single vehicle, which I have not been able to find. Uh, real data should be used to inform policy. Next point. While trolley problems make for interesting philosophical discussions, they are of limited use for developing real solutions for autonomous vehicles. Here, here. Bravo. <laughs> Agreed. At least by me. Next point. Solutions to ethical quandaries should not be open to abuse from unscrupulous users. Uh, and he's got some examples here. So uh, this is, it's an interesting one. So he talks about like buckling seatbelts if the assumptions are that you don't use seatbelts. So, so it's almost like we're going to if, – if, if all the autonomous cars are, are built with known programming and talk to each other, there's kind of like a known network of risk that's going on. Mm. That's the way I kind of read this, right? And, right? and it's tuned for that level of risk. But the minute that you start to enhance your own safety within the car, you skew that calculus. Do you see that? I mean, so he's saying things like, um, um, well, he's talking about reliably caused crashes, but he says that an autonomous vehicle owner should not be able to illicitly gain added protection by buckling seatbelts and setting down, setting boxes of books on the back seats. As to deceive the car into thinking there are multiple passengers is what I think oh, he's suggesting. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, of right. course, of course, of um, course, yeah. Or, or, and then he says, alternatively, malicious pedestrians should not be able to reliably cause crashes with minimal risk of injury by intentionally jumping 
or throwing a mannequin in front of a yeah, it's manipul it, it's intentionally manipulating the risk estimates to yeah right, which, which is something which is something to think about because of course when the risk estimates are known, there will be people who will want to manipulate them. All right, last one. Ethical concerns about autonomous vehicles should be considered primarily from the perspective of population health rather than in outcomes for individual specific scenarios. Now, I mean, that's I, in the heartland of what we talked about with Frank. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. It, it really is. And, and I, I, I both agree with it, but, but can't f- help recognizing that it's exactly what makes this so controversial is that, that, that it's hard to think of it that way because that's not how we experience using the vehicles that we use day in and day out. And as as a policymaker, you have to be concerned with how things actually go down with the public. I mean, just think, going back to the executive order thing at the top of the show, and immigrants and refugees, like, that whole thing is is independent of any rational risk estimates. Yes. Right? And and it's a, so it really is, uh, you know, my, my point about horror and the horror of the relatively few accidents looming larger in the mind than the mundane nature of 30,000 horrible deaths, really, right, right? that we accept. I mean, a policymaker has to take account of that or, you know, whether in the policy itself or in the way the policy is presented. We also talked about the fact that it could be that you would prevent more deaths by having an instrument in the vehicle that a driver could take over. Mm-hmm. If that increased the uptake of the autonomous vehicles relative to vehicles that had no such device. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's hard to balance all these things. Next, are we going to talk about our, uh, the, our email from listener Bunny? Of course. Because she's praising the Flophouse. You have to talk <laughs> about this because I'm not a Flophouse listener. You are. Have you tried the Flophouse? No. Uh, no, that's not true. I did, I did once or twice like two years ago, I think. What a, what a fantastic show. Okay, cool. A bunch of Daily Show writers, uh, well, two Daily Show writers, one guy who now has opened an, what sounds like an amazing bar in Brooklyn, if you're a D&D guy at all, mm. you know. And I, I use guy in the non-gendered sense, by the way. But So if you're into D&D at all, you would love, I think it's called the Hinterlands. Anyway, they're a group of three guys who, and here they really are dudes, uh, who watch a bad movie and then they talk about it. But it is hilarious because they go on all of these tangents and it is definitely not safe for work. It is definitely offensive, right? But they they are um, uh, not not offensive in a dude bro way at all, although it is offensive. And listener Bunny really loved an episode of the Flop House. She liked two eighteen, right? That's what she said. Yeah. And just to quote her in her conveying the the depth <laughs> of her enjoyment, um, at some point I thought I might black out from lack of oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> Now I have to say, I listen like you know. You know, I listen at two x, right, Joe? Two I, I x with that. smart speed, sometimes yep. even a little bit more. And my family hates it. And oh, so, if we that. listen to the flop house together, like I have to listen to it one x, and I'm like, oh my god, these guys are so like the timing seems all off. Mm. I'm so used to like this. So quick you have to banter. listen to it at one x for your for your other family members, right? And you're and you're probably st- sitting sometimes there they get saying, away with one point two, but yeah. And you're saying, guys, if you listen to it at two, when it's I listen so to much it, it's funnier. funny. It's it's hilarious. Right. It's so it's so quick. It's so you know, every, it's amazing. And at one X, I just I I can't deal. But <laughs> that's generally true. <laughs> uh, the funny thing though is, after you listen for a while, you get used to it at whatever speed. So. And then there's an email from another email from listener Fisher who's pa- who's giving us a tip. I have to say before you break in, I'm having a hard time paying attention because I'm getting so many Facebook notifications which are popping up. 
what are they about? Are they, I, I don't know. It's like so-and-so commented on your – like it's – people are responding to each other. I think people are fighting on my Facebook page. <laughs> wow. That's that's sign of the times, don't you think? Totally. Yeah. Listener Fisher. Okay. Uh, You're not going to read the, the from the, the email from root user? I'm not. I didn't really understand that. <laughs> it's, a spam, it's a spam thing. Cool. Okay. Listener Fisher. This is our last one. He's giving us a tip about uh, inviting onto the show Gary Lawson. Uh, and he gives us a link to this particular paper on SSRN, the title of which is, Did Justice Scalia Have a Theory of Interpretation? Now, I happen to see this abstract uh, and title go by on the Legal Theory blog, Larry Solemn's Legal Theory blog, because uh, he highlights some papers, and I did look at it, and it was an interesting, it is, an, it does look like a fun and interesting paper from the abstract. I have not looked at the paper. Yeah. The the thing that, the secondary thing that caught my eye about it is, Gary Lawson is the law professor from whom I took administrative law as a law student, oh, when really? I was a law student back in the day at Northwestern University Law School. He was teaching there at that time. He's mm-hmm. at Boston University now, I believe, but uh, uh, former Scalia clerk, very interesting guy. Uh, uh, yeah, we should do it. Sure. Uh, and uh, If he would have us, if he would agree. He's one of the, he, uh, Gary is one of the, I believe he's one of the co-founders of the Federalist Society uh, from way back in the day Yeah, uh, at Yale uh, Law School where he went with Steve Calrissi, mm-hmm. uh, nephew of the judge for whom you clerked, uh, I believe. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and it is a fascinating paper. Yeah. About the completeness. What's interesting about it is it puts these some of the judicial interpretive questions in a broader frame by asking what 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 are all the topics you would need to talk about? And I think this is what caught Fisher's eye. What are the to- what's the total set of things you'd want to talk about under the heading of a theory of interpretation? And it turns out that we spend a lot of time, we lawyers and judges, et cetera, spend a lot of time talking about a small subset. Or, or at least right. a partial, rather than the entire set. Uh, and and Gary it seems to have been trying to figure out what that complete set might. Look I really like. need to read it too. I, you know, I have this levels theory, which refers to you know, you look at you know, if you have a sea of institutions all providing information, then the job of an interpreter who, or the job of anybody making policy, is first of all to decide what information to take account of, mm-hmm. right? And some people say, well, just the just the statute which comes out of the legislature, right? So it's a rule about paying attention only to very specific information. They usually also have a rule about paying attention to dictionaries and other things authored by other people, but that's aside. So I'm particularly interested in seeing this just in terms of what is the universe that he identifies. And I've not read the paper either, so um, I, I think it'd be great. And it's also a great chance to give a shout out to you, Joe, as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about looking over things and deciding who, you know, to whom to reach out to be on the show and sending out invitations. And you have a really, really good track record. We don't always get our guests. People are sometimes busy, and yeah, and that can be frustrating. I know well, it but, takes time. Like I'll reach out, and then it turns out they they do join us, but it takes a little while yeah. for schedules and all that kind of stuff. And but people have been very generous with us to and you try to, to get the right to topics and, a, and you know in a wide array of people, and you you work really hard at it. And and uh, and I wouldn't say you're an unsung hero because you're singing I th- I think it right people, now, dude. I, pe- I think people sing your name and praises all the time. So <laughs> so I just want to give a shout out to Sung Hero. Mm. Ooh, that's maybe show title, Sung Hero. Now, what I like about Fisher's email is just 
both the specific but also the more general is, hey, everyone, emulate listener Fisher. If you if you see a paper that you think it would be fun for us to talk about, send us an email and say, hey, guys, have this person on as a guest. Or a topic and a person. A topic and Which a person. Which is usually more helpful than a very just a very broad topic because then it's like, well, we got to find the right person. Yeah, and... that's true. And that's why, you know, thinking, hey, this person just just wrote this paper or this op-ed or this thing in Slate or whatever, and it's on this yeah. thing that sounds like the kinds of stuff you guys talk about. Why don't you see if they would join you? Yeah. Right? So that kind of name and idea or name and new published thing is that's the that's the common there was one or two times there were there were one or two times that we tried to get a philosopher on, maybe just one, and that didn't work out. Correct. Yeah. And so I, there have been some invitations that I have sent that have not ever actually been replied to. <laughs> and that like that's did a, I get in their spam folder or right, what? But right, but right. that's okay. I mean, look, people are busy and people don't you know, they Maybe they've never listened to a podcast. Even if they had, maybe they don't. The maybe thought of being on one. The thought sounds of being on per- America's faculty colloquium is intimidating, Joe. Yeah, <laughs> it really shouldn't be. <laughs> well, so that's that, the mailbag. Let's zip that bag back up and yeah. say to listeners, send us a new, send us some new mail. Now, if we missed because it had been a while, if we missed your tweet or your Facebook comment, or your email, for whatever reason, maybe it, maybe it went into our spam folder, and we, we check it, maybe we didn't realize it, whatever. So if you, if you got in touch with us, and we have not talked about your comment, it's not for lack of trying. True. Um, we try eventually to get to everything, and yep. sometimes we have to kind of save it up, and or put things together, and, you know, if there are several on the same topic. But, but we, you know, if your topic didn't, didn't get talked about, uh, you know, get, get back in touch with us. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. That works. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. There's also a contact form right on our website, oralargument.org. Nice. You could you Do, could get in touch with us by leaving a five star review on iTunes and, <laughs> and typing your comment right into the right into the uh, yeah. thing, right? Or you could uh, look for us on the Twitter at oral argument. At oral argument. Or on Facebook. I think we are real Donald Trump on Facebook. Is that oh, we, ah, ah. No, no, that's Twitter. No, we are Oral Argument on Twitter. If you search for Oral oral Argument, you'll find us there. Yeah. Cool. Anything else? Nope. Wrap it up. Wrap it.